according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Hebrews 13. Almost at the end, Hebrews 13. We uh, we ran out of time last week as we were looking at verse 19 where he said, I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. And I think it's valuable for us if we at least remind ourselves and take a few minutes at the beginning of this hour to uh, make sure we're solid on that. And then we can move on to verses 20 and 21. The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in the blessings that we have in Christ, celebrating, Father, how faithful you are to, uh, to send your Son to provide our eternal life, to provide for our growth in the Word of God. So, Father, on this day, as we present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth, we call upon your faithfulness, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, to lead us in all things, even the deep things of God. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty, and so picking up from where we are last week and praying hard that everything continues. <laughs> this has been a crazy morning. Having a power failure last hour, not just our church building, but the whole block, I'm told. So uh, it was outside of our, our realm, but makes for interesting things. Well, Hebrews 13 um, says pray for us in verse 18. And as I advance the slide here, this is what we looked at last week in the pray for us exhortation. The us that we've seen several times, starting in about, I think, chapter 3 or 6 or somewhere in there, uh, the author hinted at the fact that there were more people with him than just him all by himself. And so there were a lot of we statements that have been made or us statements that are made that apply to the author and those that are with the author, either as co-authors or as, as just supporters, those that are in ministry with the primary author. And so when he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And so things are going well, but they still request the prayers. Just because you think things are going well, maybe there's things you're not aware of, or maybe your conscience is clear, but it shouldn't be. Uh, your conscience needs to uh, be exposed to some other things that, that would start to bother your conscience if you haven't uh, uh, maybe uh, talked yourself into being content with what you're doing. So uh, the invitation for prayer is marvelous, and we looked at this with respect to uh, a very Pauline type of thing. Uh, this kind of request would be very common Pauline practice, typically for speaking endeavors. And the Apostle Paul was constantly asking various churches to pray for him and to pray for open-door opportunities and for speaking endeavors, that he would have boldness in speech. This particular request is not for boldness in speech necessarily, but it's really for the good conduct, the good conscious conduct 
that they already had uh, undertaking, but that they wanted to continue and they wanted to make sure it was as, uh, as valid as they thought it was. And so there is a, a we prayer request and it's, it doesn't violate the doctrine of privacy to, uh, to ask churches to pray for you in a variety of different ways. I think that's the doctrine that, that uh, Colonel Thiem taught years ago. Probably more abused than any other doctrine because people took it far beyond anything that, that the Scripture ever uh, expects that it can be applied to. But that's a, that's a sermon for a different day. We'll, we'll move past that at this moment. The pray for us turns into a pray for me when we go from verse 18 to verse 19. So he says, and I urge you all the more. So the authorship we that was concerned for their honorable conduct now gives way to the uh, primary author. He highlights himself at this point when he goes from the pray for us in verse 18 to the I urge you. I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Not the we, and, and whatever team is with him presently will not be coming with him when he returns to uh, the recipient's location. Uh, Timothy might come with him, we'll see that here shortly. Uh, but he himself hopes to be restored to them all the sooner. So the primary author highlights his personal prayer request, his restoration to the epistle recipient's location. So wherever they are, wherever he is, he wants to be where they are. And he used to be where they are, because you can't be restored to something if you were never there in the first place. So he, he wants to return to where they are, and uh, he feels that he can do so the sooner if they pray the more. And that's what I want to emphasize here. Because I think it's flawed doctrine, I think it's a bad approach when uh, believers think that their prayers don't have this kind of effect. The Scripture says they do. Scripture says that things can happen sooner. Scripture says that other things only happen once prayer is engaged. And that doesn't mean that God can't do things sooner, that God can't do things without prayer, but God delights in doing things in response to His children asking Him. And so we want to be fellow workers with God by virtue of prayer. We can ask Him to do the things that He's just waiting to do, waiting for us to get around to asking Him. And so these things I think become important. So um, he's highlighting this, his restoration to their location. Remember the geographic will of God, it's the Lord's business. He's the one that opens doors and closes doors, but it's our business to do the praying, to ask for those open doors, to ask for the, the relocation in his will, if it could be his will, to, uh, to place us where he wants us to be. More prayer equals sooner consequences. All right? And this is just straight up the truth of what this passage is talking about. And, and I realize that there are Christians that will dispute this. They don't like it. They don't want it. Their theology doesn't let them state it because uh, they, they feel like that would be subjecting the sovereignty of God to the volition of man. And they feel like uh, they just can't emotionally come to grips with that. They feel like that's exalting our will over God's will and that somehow we're, we're, we're forcing God to change His sovereignty or limiting His sovereignty. And it's nothing like that at all. And so the, the concerns that the critics have are, is unwarded to begin with. But the plain language is more prayer equals sooner results. And when he says, I urge you all the more to do this so that the consequence is the result, the outcome of the more prayer is the so that I may be restored to you the sooner. 
And this is uh, stated, and it's not the only passage that does this, by the way. And so because we didn't have time last week to look at all these, I'll take just a few minutes today. And uh, of course I run the risk of doing this on a communion Sunday when we, always, we have the shorter time period to work with anyway. But uh, to me it's worthwhile. Isaiah 62, one of my favorite prayer passages in verses 6 and 7. And, and this, you know, Isaiah spoke this 700 years before Christ. And it was just as applicable then as it's applicable now. I think it's more applicable now. Uh, the fact is, as Jews in the Old Testament could pray anytime they wanted to, but they didn't have advantage of a priesthood going into the Holy of Holies except for one day a year. Now we can pray any day we want to, but in our prayers, all day, every day, we are within the veil standing before the Father because this is the finished work of our Savior who has brought our priesthood into a face-to-face relationship with God the Father. So anyway, we can adapt this and realize as true as this was when Isaiah gave it, it is far more applicable today for you and for me. But he says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. Just like you know, you put guards on the walls. Uh, but in prayer, this is what he has done. On your walls, O Jerusalem, of appointed watchmen, all day and all night, they will never keep silent. Prayer should be exhaustive if we're praying this comprehensively and this frequently and this without ceasing as we're commanded to do. Never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. You who remind the Lord. I forget when it was, but a while back we did a yoo-hoo, right? Every yoo-hoo that's in the Bible, you know, yoo-hoo, yoo-hoo. And there's a bunch of them, okay? And they're kind of fun to look at. Plus it's just fun saying yoo-hoo. But, but yoo-hoo, remind the Lord. Remind the Lord, okay? Now he's omniscient, he doesn't forget anything, and he knows what we need before we even ask. But we are still yoo-hoo, remind the Lord. And this is our, our blessing to remind him so that what he already knows comes to his, the forefront of his attention. That he is mindful, like when God remembered Noah or God remembered the Israelites in Egypt or God remembered. It's not that he forgot, it's that he chose to put these people in the forefront of his attention, his active dealings. And this is what we do as we remind. So you who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest. Isn't that beautiful? So if we're not taking a rest for ourselves, we also make sure he doesn't get a break. We're not giving God a rest. We're like the little kid in the back seat with, uh, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And that's how we're supposed to pray. Pray without ceasing. Be the nagging widow that's just wearing out that unrighteous judge. Jesus preached on this in his parable about the, the fervency, the, the, the in, importunate prayer. We just don't stop. Keep bugging them, keep bugging them, keep bugging them. And it's expressed here in the Hebrew text of Isaiah 62. It says, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until, until. Now in this context, until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. We can adapt this for whatever the consequences are. And the author of Hebrews would say, give him no rest until I am restored to you all the sooner. Say, until the answer to the prayer is given. When Jacob was wrestling with the angel of the Lord all night long, okay? The biblical Jacob. Wrestling with the Lord all night long. And he said, I'm not letting go until you answer, until you provide. And so we have the pattern there as well. All right, Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8. 
Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. I mean how absolute is that? Prayer works. Ask, seek, and knock. You're making your request known, you're seeking His will, and you're knocking on every closed door until God opens it. He will open the doors He wants to open and we run with endurance the race that's set before us. And if He chooses to keep a door closed, that's His business. We can be thankful for that. Maybe we should start knocking at the right door. Acts 12.5 So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Notice it's corporate prayer. It's not just a throwaway statement of, oh man, I'm sorry, I heard Peter's in jail. Wow, I better pray for him. No, we're going to get together and pray for him. In fact, we're going to assemble at a certain place at a certain time and we're going to pray all night long. This is a marvelous chapter because this is, I love this, this is, it's easier to break out of jail than it is to get into a prayer meeting sometimes. And, and the, the angel got him out of the jail. And then uh, he goes, so he goes and uh, you get, read down through here and the angel gets him out and then so he goes to the house knocks at the door of the gate and a servant girl, a little slave girl there named Rhoda came to answer and she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy she did not open the gate but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. You know. Well, open the gate. Let him in. What are you doing? But she just left him out there on the porch. Went running in and nobody believed her. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so and they kept saying it is his angel. He must have died in jail and now it's, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking and when they had opened the door they saw him and were amazed. So this is interesting because it shows the value of corporate prayer but it also shows us the, the principle of, of incessant knocking. Just keep knocking, okay? And eventually maybe they'll let you into the prayer meeting. By the way, you're invited to our prayer meetings anytime. Sunday mornings, Wednesday night when we have our prayer meetings, anybody is welcome to come and pray. We appreciate that. 2 Corinthians 1.11 Paul talking about this ministry he had it rough in Ephesus. He was thrown to the lions, he was in jail, he despaired even of life. This, this is the perfect setting for the writing of Galatians, uh, the writing, not Galatians, but Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and, and Philemon. He said, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. It says even before that, the affliction which came to us in Asia, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. But God delivered us from so great a peril of death. He will deliver us he on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. So now, in the near future, and always, God is faithful. He will keep on delivering us. But then He says, you also joining in helping us through your prayers. Recognize this, the believers in Corinth were going to become fellow workers with the Apostle Paul. And they were going to help the Apostle Paul be delivered by God through their prayers. Joining and helping us through your prayers. The collective corporate prayer of the saints in, in Corinth was going to be an assistance to Paul and God saving Paul from the future scrapes he knew were coming up down the road. So that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of the many. The favor is bestowed through the many. Many. 
So if they're not praying, how does the favor get there? But if the favor is bestowed through the prayers of the many, we see that it's a conduit, it's a vehicle, it's the means. You don't have the prayers, you don't have the favor. Again, it's not just one or two passages, it's again and again and again we see the fervent effectual prayers of a righteous man availeth much. We'll get there. All right, Philippians 1.19. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. This is debating back and forth in this chapter, should I stay or should I go, right? Long before that was ever a pop song on the radio. Paul didn't know if he was going to live or die. In fact, he was kind of cheering both directions, honestly, because he wanted to be with the Lord, but he knew that if he stayed on earth he would have ministry with the Philippians and other folks. But he finally comes down and he says there's still more work to do and he says I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now again, prayer, corporate prayer becomes a mechanism through which God provides. James 1.5, ask of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. Just like Jesus said, ask and ye shall receive. Ask and it will be given. And without reproach. He's not going to call you a dummy for taking so long to ask. He's going to provide. Because you need wisdom and he knows you need wisdom. And he's glad that you're coming to him instead of going to Satan. Satan's got a different kind of wisdom. This world has a different kind of wisdom. But you must ask in faith without any doubting. You know, if you go to God the Father and ask him for something, but in the back of your mind you think, nah, he's not going to do it. He didn't want to do it. I'm not worth it anyway. I'm not good enough for him to do this. You're just so humanly wrong in how prayer works and how God works. James 4. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So here's the key. When you're, when you're asking, make sure you're asking in fellowship, you're asking according to His will, you're knocking on the right door, not the wrong door, and uh, these, these promises are all fulfilled. It's how it works. So there you have it, the whole doctrine of prayer in six minutes. I like it. But more prayer equals sooner consequences. Then when we get to verses 20 and 21, we have a benediction. And it's almost like he returns back to the mode that he was writing in when he composed chapters 1 through 12. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a powerful uh, oratory. It's a powerful written uh, uh, benediction as we see it. It's a call upon God to do what God does. Those are the best kind of benedictions. Because this is what God does. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now here's a pair of verses that we could spend the next six months, we could spend ages pouring through the details and outlining. You know how many doctrines are in these two verses right here? amazing. And so many are applicable to where we are. Right? I mean, Austin Bible Church is a training ministry. 
Aren't we training men to be pastors? Aren't we training evangelists? Aren't we training uh, men and women in their spiritual giftedness and their ministries? Aren't we equipping them to do the work of service? Doesn't Ephesians 4 say, uh, pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service? I thought I was here equipping you guys this morning. I am. But is it me that's doing it? It's really God the Father is the one doing the equipping. And He works through those that are in Christ. He works through church-age believer priests in ways that He could not work through Old Testament saints. But because we are in Christ, the Father can work through us. And that's what it says here. And this is what He's calling upon God to do, the God of peace, to equip you. And He doesn't, doesn't say, you know, to equip you in the big things and you handle the little things. He doesn't say, you know, to bail you out of all the, the biggies that come along that you kind of got swamped by. He says, equip you in every good thing to do His will. So if you're going to get out of fellowship and leave the good things and just do what you're doing in the flesh, well, God's got no part of that. He's not going to work in you for that. But if you're in Christ and doing these good things that He's leading you to do in the gifts, ministries, and effects of God, it's the Father doing the effects. Just like we saw in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So, God of peace. Very common. The Apostle Paul very frequently will close his epistles with a God of peace benediction. And the people that think Paul wrote this point, this is one of their points of evidence. This must be, Paul must have written this epistle because look, he has a God of peace benediction, just like Paul always had a God of peace benediction. We accept the fact that Paul very frequently made use of God of peace benedictions. And we've always made the case that whoever the author of Hebrews is, if it's not Paul, that he traveled with Paul, was very associated with Paul, very familiar with Pauline thought, certainly had friends with Pauline associates like Timothy, and uh, there's no question about that. But we can find the God of peace in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And so the God of peace is well known. I could probably save some time here if we don't look at all these. So it does echo a Pauline uh, exhortation. A lot of these things do. The, the appeal for prayer, that was very Pauline. Uh, the closing with grace, when you put grace in the last verse of your book, that's very Pauline. And these are the things that, again, the folks that try to defend the Pauline authorship of Hebrews, they point to all these things and say, see, this is what Paul does. Now, Paul's not the only one that does that, as we'll see here shortly. Anyway, I'll let you look up these on your own, given that this is Communion Sunday and we don't have all the time we would have on a typical Sunday. But Romans 15, 33, you see them on the screen. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Philippians 4, 9. You notice these are all the final, well, except for Romans. There is a 16th chapter in Romans. Uh, and there's 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. But anyway, late in the epistles, there will be a benediction with an appeal to the God of peace. A referencing of the God of peace. Philippians 4, 9, that is the last chapter. 1 Thessalonians 5, that is the last chapter. 2 Thessalonians 3. All right. So the benedictions there by the God of peace. Now, what did the God of peace do? He brought up from the dead the great shepherd. The great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. So the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. Understand, Jesus Christ, he is the good, the great, and the chief shepherd. If you ever want to find these verses, I found them for you. There they are. 
The good shepherd is John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd knows his sheep. I know my own and my sheep know me. My sheep hear my voice. There's so much here with John chapter 10. I'll slow down and look at this one. There's so much here with John chapter 10. There we go. But this is the... uh, the good shepherd in John 10, the great shepherd in John uh, Hebrews 13, and the chief shepherd in 1 Peter chapter 5, where he promises reward to faithful sheep. Ooh, how did that happen? All right. John 10. See, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is what he does. He's the pattern for every pastor teacher of every local church in the church age because he is the good shepherd and his under shepherds are commanded to be his imitators. Laying down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, he sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. It's just heartbreaking to me when I see pulpit committees and they're not looking for shepherds. And uh, they, they end up with the, hiring, the hirelings that they want. And uh, once they end up with the hireling that they want, because they want their ears tickled, then here comes the wolf. And the ear-tickling uh, hireling is, has no interest in risking his own neck for, for these sheep. That's not shepherding, you understand. It says in verse 13, he flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Rejoice when God gives you a shepherd, when God places you in a lampstand where you have an accountable shepherd before the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I know my own and my own know me. And so we have an identification. And I, I try to tell our visitors, listen. Listen for the voice of your shepherd. Don't just evaluate, you know, do they have a good singles ministry or do they have Sunday school for the kids or what kind of bowling league do they have or what, you know, what else do they do in churches? What's the music like? And all the criteria people put into the, their choices of, of what, uh, you know, what mega church they're going to attend or whatever. All right. Listen for the voice of your shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. By the way, that's epigonosco. Oh no, it's gonosco. I had put color codes on those at one time. Green is the gnosko. All right. And then, of course, the great shepherd, <clears throat> as he's resurrected here, it's the great shepherd that's in connection with our priestly ministry, the great shepherd that's in connection with our being equipped for the work of service. And then the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4. This is where fellow elders are commanded to shepherd the flock of God among you. A pastor teacher doesn't have to shepherd every believer on the planet. You can't possibly do that anyway and you'd kill yourself trying. And you'd make a lot of people mad when you step across your jurisdiction to somebody else's uh, flock. Because the flock of God among you, flock of God among some other shepherd. Uh, I don't have to shepherd Pastor Cliff's flock or Pastor Dan's flock or Pastor Theme's flock or anybody else. They have to shepherd the flock of God among them. Like I have to shepherd the flock of God among me. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. 
according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, just like Jesus said with the good shepherd versus the hireling in John 10, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Remember that? Allotted to your charge. We saw this in the verse uh, just a little bit ago when it said, pray for your leaders as those who will give an account. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They are accountable because you have been allotted to them. And the one who did the allotting holds them accountable. <clears throat> Proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. If the under-shepherd is doing what he's commanded to do, if he's pleasing to the, to the chief shepherd, then the chief shepherd will award that shepherd, that elder, that overseer, the unfading crown of glory. That's a crown for faithful shepherds, for faithful uh, overseers. So this is a, a marvelous testimony to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the good, the great, and the chief shepherd. Then it says, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, either through or with or by, I think with is, is the best way, with the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus was raised from the dead with the blood of the eternal covenant. Brought up from the dead with the blood of the eternal covenant. Prepared to sprinkle it on the nation of Israel once they are prepared to enter into the new covenant. This verse is marvelous. I'm glad we hit this verse on a communion Sunday because this verse addresses what we do when we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. When we partake of the bread and of the cup. That the bread speaks to His finished work, what He did, His, his true humanity and sinless uh, perfection when the Lamb of God accomplished the, the work of God the Father in taking away the sin of the world. He shed His blood on the cross, Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. But that blood is not yet sprinkled on the nation of Israel. Very key that we recognize this. We've seen it in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. So what you're getting this morning is a little reminder of what you already know. Assuming you were paying attention back then. Alright. The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep with, through, with, or by, again I think with is a good rendering, the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will. And so keep in mind, Jesus Christ was brought back from the dead because He has more work to do. You and I have work to do. And the work that we're going to do in the resurrection is right along the lines of what Jesus is going to do in the resurrection. He's the mediator of the new covenant. We are ministers of the new covenant. Diakonoi, deacons of the new covenant. And just as He was equipped to do this work, we get equipped we get equipped to do this work. Jesus was raised from the dead. It's a good thing because after he was raised, what did he do? He ascended to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly temple. Not with animal blood, with his own blood. He went to the heavenly temple and he cleansed the heavenly temple. We studied that. It was all in, in Hebrews chapter 9 that the shadows and the types were just anticipating what Jesus would do in His resurrected victory. And so He did. He went to heaven and He cleansed the heavenly temple. Now the pattern for this comes in Exodus 24 
which we've seen a couple times, but I don't mind looking at it again. <clears throat> Exodus 24, and the screen says 5 through 8. I'm going to back up a little bit. He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. So clearly this is before the Nadab and Abihu judgment, before Eleazar and Ithamar got promoted. It is curious to me how uh, Aaron is the father of four, but it's only the oldest two that were uh, invited to come with him at this time. As well as 70 of the elders, 12 tribes broken down into 70 clans or divisions. And so each of those clans with uh, their elder that was invited to participate. And so what do we have? We have a priestly context, we have a feasting context, we have an anticipation of the millennial kingdom. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. And so they get closer than the people, but Moses gets the closest of all. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord, all the ordinances, all the people answered with one voice, and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay? They're a bunch of liars, but they say they're going to do it. They're going to fulfill the law. All of the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, they, <clears throat> they can say that. They can anticipate that. They can intend that. But are they really going to do that? Then we have to sacrifice the animals. It's not even written yet. So verse 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, Then he arose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice it's so that they identify with this sacrifice. This is the Old Testament typology. That's why there's 12 pillars, the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. So representatives of those tribes, not the elders, young men. And uh, I'm presuming one per tribe, so 12 of these guys, 12 offerings. And uh, now once the blood has been shed, is the work over? The work is not over. In fact, shedding the blood really just is part of it. It gets it started, but there's so much more to do. So Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And that is so vital, okay, Because we're not diminishing the shedding of blood. We're not diminishing what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That was the shedding of blood. But let's understand what are all the other ramifications that followed the shedding of blood. So Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And so there's a set-aside blood that's in basins waiting for a future sprinkling. But then there's the immediate blood that has to go to the altar, sprinkled on the altar. And that's what Jesus did when he went to heaven and he cleansed the altar. He cleansed the temple in heaven. But the set-aside blood that's in the basins, it's, it's still set aside. What happens to that blood? Well, let's keep reading. So then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So they heard it once, or maybe they didn't even hear it once, they just heard about it, and they said, yeah, we'll do that. 
But it wasn't in writing yet, and the blood wasn't shed yet. Now it's in writing, and now the blood is shed. And now the altar is prepared. And so he took the book of the covenant, read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. It's even more comprehensive than the earlier oath. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. This is the whole point. Why half of the blood was set aside? Why it was put in basins? Why it was withheld? It was delayed until the people were prepared to have it sprinkled on them. I'm telling you, the blood of Jesus Christ from Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, that blood of Jesus Christ, the Jewish people are not yet ready. The the nation of Israel is not yet ready. The kingdom of Israel under the throne of David is not yet ready. They still reject that Jesus is the Christ. Most of them, the nation at large, rejects that Jesus is the Christ. There's a handful, there's a remnant, and any time a Jewish person gets saved, well then, guess what? They're not Jewish anymore, now they're body of Christ in the church. And so by that definition, every Jew on the planet today is an unbeliever. Because when a Jew gets saved, he's not a Jew anymore, he's, he's in Christ. And so until Israel accepts their Messiah until they accept the terms, then the blood is still sitting over here in the bowls. It's still sitting over here in the basins, waiting to be sprinkled on the nation of Israel. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the verse Jesus was quoting when he gave his disciples communion in the upper room. We're about to have communion ourselves here this morning. And he breaks bread and he says, this is my body. And he gives the cup and he says, this is the blood of the covenant. And he is reciting, not word for word and not exactly, but he is reciting in the same vein, in the same realm, if you will, that Moses, when he gave this uh, in, in Exodus 24. All right. And then what happens? Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate, and they drank. I think this was a national Mount of Transfiguration event for for Moses, for Aaron, for the priests, and for the 70 elders. And whereas Peter, James, and John just got to watch, you know, they got to eavesdrop a little bit on the conversation in the, on the Mount of Transfiguration with, with Jesus, Moses, and, and Elijah. Here, the whole nation, uh, not the whole nation, but the, the elders and the priests, and they have a feasting event. They have a, a preview of the millennium, a preview of the coming kingdom. How glorious is this? And so when we, when we consider... The typology, we've got shadows and we have types. We have their anticipation, but we have our reality. Because guess what? We eat at a table. We have a table at which these guys are not qualified to eat. 
We have a table. We have a priesthood far beyond anything this priesthood even dreamed about. So this episode is quite interesting. Anyway, this is the blood. When we read in, in, in uh, again, getting back here to um, Hebrews thirteen twenty, he brought him from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, with or through the blood of the eternal covenant. This is the blood that's waiting to be sprinkled. This is the blood that cleanses the altar, that goes to heaven and cleanses the, the holy place in heaven and is waiting to sprinkle the nation of Israel. So when we drink the cup, Jesus said he's not going to drink that cup again until he drinks it new in the Father's kingdom. So when we drink the cup, without Jesus being with us yet, right, the trumpet hasn't sounded, assuming the trumpet doesn't sound between now and the top of the hour, we're going to, Jesus will still be at the Father's right hand, we'll still be on earth, we're going to eat the bread and drink the cup. And it'll be a testimony to the fact that he has not come yet. And the blood is waiting to be sprinkled on the nation of Israel. It's waiting to be sprinkled on the recipients of the new covenant. Because he's coming back. Remember when Moses brought him out of bondage, he gave him the old covenant. When Jesus brings him out of bondage from the four corners of the earth, he brings him into the kingdom and he gives him the new covenant. That's when this blood gets sprinkled. Matthew 23, 39 You see, there's a requirement for him to come back. It says in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So you remember, as we said in Exodus 24, they couldn't have the blood sprinkled on them until they were accepting of the terms and until they were willing to obey and submit. Well, that's the pattern. And until Israel is is willing to submit to their Messiah, the Messiah they crucified, he can't come back. He won't come back. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. See, the sovereignty of God is not thwarted by negative volition because the sovereignty of God provides the volition and then honors the choices we make and gives us the consequences of our rebellion or the consequences of our repentance. They were unwilling. So they didn't get the kingdom in 33 AD. They could have had the kingdom in 33 AD, but they don't. They crucify their Christ. And so we have now a church age in between the first advent and the second advent. I don't know what the plan would have been if they, you know, would have had some way to get a bride for his son. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, for I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Think about how similar that statement is. He's telling this to unbelieving Israel. From now on, I say to you, from now on, you will not see me. This is like when Jesus tells the disciples, from now on, I will not drink of this cup until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. But here, talking to unbelieving Israel, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You ever think about why he never had any resurrection appearance to an unbeliever? All of his resurrection appearances to the apostles, to believers, to the women at the tomb, everyone that he appeared to was already saved. There was no unbeliever that saw the resurrected Lord. They can't. 
He said, you will not see me until the national repentance of Israel, until he returns at second advent. And so the the mission of the early church is for the apostles to testify, we've seen the risen Lord. And all the unbelievers saying, yeah, right. And we testify to the risen Lord. And uh, they have to gnash their teeth at the empty tomb because they, they don't know what happened to the body. Matthew 26. Now this is a Passover dinner. This is on Thursday night before uh, he's uh, crucified the next day on Friday. Of course, since they measure days by sundown, it probably already is Friday. But on the evening of Thursday night, and he comes together with his disciples, and while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now the shadows here are different. This is new. This is not a normal procedure for Passover. We've done Passover demonstrations before. In fact, we're overdue. We should do another one. Have a Passover demonstration uh, again. See if we can get aerial ministries to come and, and, and do a full dinner for us like we did. We can celebrate our freedom from COVID with a, with a Passover dinner. Now the Passover had its own theology. It had its own Christology, its own shadows and doctrines and realities. This is something new. This is something that he inaugurates. He begins something new to these disciples that will very quickly become church age apostles. So he gave the bread and he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. And then he gives an explanation. The body didn't get much of an explanation, did it? It was just take, eat, this is my body. But now he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. So there's a purpose here. Pouring it out for many that have rejected him and then a recognition of a delay until he can return. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of this fruit of the vine from now on until. And so he says, this is the last time I'm going to partake of this until. But you guys keep doing this. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death. Not the death and resurrection. You proclaim the Lord's death. Because there's a body of people out there that have rejected him as their Messiah. That have not yet been humbled to accept that the Messiah they crucified was dying for them. And so they have to look upon him whom they pierced. They have to cry out to the Lord to be saved. The the Lord that they crucified. Only then, when they are humbled, when they are broken, when the nation of Israel says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by Lord they mean the Lord Jesus Christ whom they crucified. It takes the national repentance of Israel for Jesus to return. And when he returns, remember that blood that was set aside in the, in the basins? That blood that hasn't been sprinkled yet on the people? It's going to be. It's going to get sprinkled on the nation of Israel because he's going to regather all the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth. And he's going to purge the unbelievers. They go to hell. But believing Jews that are gathered into the wilderness, he sprinkles them with this blood. 
and the Jewish nation will be, all Israel will be saved. The Jewish nation will be ready to enter into their kingdom. At which point, it says he puts them under the rod of the covenant. They pass under the rod like when Jacob was separating speckled sheep and black sheep and other sheep. He had a rod operation going on there. Jesus is going to bring Israel under the rod, under the bond of the covenant, sprinkled with his blood, marching up the holy highway to Jerusalem. What a day that's going to be. Okay? And you know where we're going to be? With the Lord, right. Because thus we shall always be with the Lord. Trick question. I'm going to use that. I'm going to keep using that. Because if Jesus is there, we're there. Now, this not until, not until. And so when Jesus gets brought up from the dead, he's brought up with the blood of the eternal covenant. It's ready. Ready to be sprinkled. Ready to be applied. Having prepared the mediator, the Father now prepares ministers. Ministers of the new covenant. Jesus is prepared. In fact, he's sitting at his, the Father's right hand waiting for the Father to make his enemies a footstool. He's also waiting for the Father to equip his ministers, his bride. Having prepared the mediator, the Father prepares the ministers of the new covenant. Equipping and working in us his good pleasure through Jesus Christ. We can save some time here too. Of course, we know that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews 9.15. By the way, don't confuse that with his mediator role in our salvation. Okay, Because some people go to 1 Timothy and they say there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And on the basis of the 1 Timothy usage of mediator, which is between God and all mankind... They, they, they see Jesus' role as Savior. But Hebrews is a different kind of mediatorship. The new covenant is not with all mankind. The new covenant is with Israel. And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. That's different from him being the mediator of our salvation. Keep those separate and you make your life simple. Blend those all together and you make a mash of everything. And you have to put the church into the new covenant. And you have to confuse Israel with the church. And you end up with more problems than you solve. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. We are ministers of the new covenant. We are made adequate as ministers of the new covenant. And everything we do in the church age is making us adequate. Because God makes us adequate. Equipping and working in us His good pleasure through Jesus Christ. All right, and so when we talk about our present adequacy and our also adequacy, that's uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. And I'm just not going to finish this before our communion, am I? So here's your homework. And we've got notes on this. We've got a, a 2 Corinthians notebook. There's MP3s on the website. Look at the total adequacy we, adequacy we have in verse 5. Adequacy in verse 5. Total, complete adequacy for the church age in verse 5. But then there's an also in verse 6. Also makes us adequate as diakonoi, servants, deacons of a new covenant. 
So we have all our present adequacy in verse 5 for the church age, but then there's the also adequacy for not only the work that he's doing now, but the work he's going to do when we come back in the second advent. And the bride is the only adequate ministers to to the new covenant because we're the only ones in Christ, the mediator. Anyway, stay tuned for that. Equipping, Ephesians 4.12, 2 Timothy 3.17, working in us His good pleasure. It's God who's at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. When God works in you, those are the effects, I'm telling you. The Holy Spirit gives the gift. Jesus opens the doors of ministry. It's God the Father who produces the effects. First Timothy, I mean First Corinthians 12, verses 4, 5, and 6. Equipping us, working in us. Just like He worked in Christ. He's working in us. All right. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this message. I thank You for this truth. I thank you that this message came on a communion Sunday, Father. That we can be reminded about the blood of the eternal covenant. And Father, I thank you. We were never under the first covenant. We're not going to be under the new covenant. But uh, we are in Christ and he's the mediator of the new covenant. And uh, as he mediates, we minister. We are the deacon ministers to his mediation. And so Father, it is uh, a blessing and a joy to study to show ourselves approved to learn, to grow, to make application, to, uh, to advance in all that you have called for us to do in this life, all in preparation for what we will do in the next when we are brought up from the dead and put to work according to your gracious plan. So Father, I thank you on this communion service that we can indeed testify, we can proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we will sing a communion hymn. Jennifer and Jennifer.